0: Mavis Kirkham is midwifery professor, Emerita at Sheffield Hallam University and has held honorary professorial positions at the University of Technology Sydney and Auckland University of Technology. After over 40 years as a clinical midwife and researcher, Mavis is interested in reflecting and writing on birth and midwifery in its wider context. A major theme of her research has been the way in which the context of their care impacts upon childbearing women and how their working experiences impact upon midwives. She has long been concerned with how birth stories are negotiated and the impact of these stories on tellers and hearers. With Nadine Edwards, she has edited a new book titled Free Birth Stories. In this episode, we discuss with Mavis about Mavis's interest in free birth and why it seems more women are choosing this way to give birth. Mavis tells us about the stories from women and doulas she and Nadine collected for their new book, Free Birth Stories. We discuss the importance of language in pregnancy, birth and postpartum spaces and the important role that doulas play. And we ask Mavis what she sees as the future of midwifery. Mavis is one of those midwives who has witnessed so many parts of midwifery, and her bounty of knowledge and kindness shines through in this episode. I know you will get a lot out of this incredible episode of The Midwife's Cauldron, so you know what to do. Pop your headphones on, stir the dinner, or put the lead on the dog, as you are in for a treat. I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives' Cauldron Podcast. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. But just a sec, before we start on this epic episode, if you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses books collectives a go-go you'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old instagram at the midwives cauldron and if you really really love the show please consider two things a single or a monthly donation over on patreon or even buy me a coffee and remember that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in Thank you for your support. We just love having you bubbling away with us. Good morning, Dr. Sarah Wickham. What are you doing in the cauldron with me today?
1: Good morning Katie. Well you invited me to the cauldron to come and be the backup midwife because Dr. Rachel Reed isn't around.
0: Oh yes, it must be one of those times when Dr. Rachel Reed is on call, unavailable, doing something else and I thought, you know what, I really need some super duper awesome midwife with another cat to come into the cauldron with me and keep me company and that's exactly what you're here for. So you're my backup midwife today. I'm here for
1: you all day. I'm excited.
0: I'm excited to have you.
1: So shall we get on with the show? Absolutely, let's do that great. Good
0: morning Sarah and good morning Mavis Kirkham. Welcome to the Midwife's Cauldron. I am incredibly excited to have you here with us in the cauldron today. Thank you
1: so much.
2: It's great to be here. It's my first podcast. I
1: know. That's fabulous. I feel very honoured. We get to interview you together. I'm so excited.
0: It's really great. So, Mavis, we have a lot to get through in a short period of time today, and I want to try and pick all of those um, pieces of information that we can weave a wonderful podcast episode. But firstly, what I'd love you to do for our audience is... Just tell us a little bit about yourself and the story of how you came into midwifery, because I know that you didn't grow up wanting to actually be a midwife.
2: No, um, it was quite accidental in a way. I I don't think I knew what I wanted to be when I was growing up. I left school at 15, worked on market stalls for a bit, got a job in a bank, which was fairly tedious Decided I wanted to go to university and did a couple of A-levels by correspondence course and went to universities to do politics and modern history. Those were the days when you got a grant and you didn't pay your fees and it was possible for a working class kid to just do that, which is impossible now. Anyway, these were the heady political days of the early 60s and it was a very exciting time to be studying politics. And I did that and then I went out to East Africa to do research um on a project which folded just because of the local situation, then went to Central Africa, um, did more research, got married, decided I wanted to do something which was practically useful rather than just doing research. And having looked at what courses would give me a practical skill, decided I was going to do nursing, because the shortened nursing courses for graduates had just started in the UK. So I came back to the UK and did that, and in the course of doing it, I really enjoyed the maternity bit, did my midwifery and fell in love with it and have done it ever since. Wow, that's a
0: entrance yeah. into midwifery.
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, I know that – so, so, Mavis, we've known each other for more than 30 years, um, and so so, I've obviously, you know, I, I've followed your career for a very long time, and, and I know that you were one of the very – first midwives i think it's the second midwife. we were trying to work this out the other day right? yeah. but you were you were certainly one of the first midwives to get a phd um and it would be it would be great if you could talk a bit about the research you did for your phd because i think that people who are just getting involved in birth in midwifery today or even in the last few years don't necessarily aren't don't necessarily have an awareness of like the research that went on 30 or 40 years ago, which underpins so much of what we do now and is still really influential in helping us to understand and address some of the problems in maternity care. Can you can you speak about your research a
2: bit? Yeah, my PhD is called Basic Supportive Care in Labour and was an observational study of 118 labours in different settings. This all sort of went back to my past because I... I mean, going back to the sort of politics of the 60s, I was very involved with the Institute for Workers' Control and things like that. And while I was doing my midwifery and nursing qualifications, I did an MA on workers' cooperative factories. And the thing that really fascinates me is people's control of their work situation. So I started off in a relatively simple situation where you know, people were working in a factory, and how could they control that? But when you get to midwifery, there's the woman and her her control, both, you know, her body's control and her mind and what it's doing in labour. But also, you've got the worker who is the midwife who is attending her and her need for some control of her situation, and how these can mesh. And that's the thing in a way that's you know, obsessed me for a very long time. So I observed um, these labours, mainly in a consultant unit and some in what was then called rural GP units and some home births. And what I found wouldn't surprise anyone that the midwife, where the midwives had more control of their situation, they gave more autonomy. To, they allowed the women more autonomy. And I think it was allowed in the GP units. But in the home, you know, it was the mother's home. And I don't think then midwives were trying to set up a hospital in the home. I think some do now or used to hospitals. But, you know, they were there as guests and they behaved as guests and they didn't have an offstage professional area. And behaviour was very different. Conversation was very different. What happened was very different. Um so there are all sorts of nuances within the settings, but the settings made a lot of difference.
1: Mm.
2: And I did a lot of things on 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 conversation and this wonderful concept of verbal asepsis and all that sort of thing.
1: Well, t- tell us about that. Tell us tell us a bit about what you mean by that.
2: <laughs> verbal asepsis is you know how asepsis is a non-touch technique, yeah, yep. for doing dressings and things. Well, this is the same in conversation. Oh, I love that. So that you can answer the question without touching the subject. Mm. You know, if someone says, I'm really frightened about something, Mm. and you say, don't worry, dear, it'll be all right. That's verbal acceptance. Nobody ever stopped worrying because somebody said, don't worry. Mm. They might if you said, don't worry because, and then explain something. But don't worry is actually... Always interpreted by the woman as shut up, yes, mm. yeah, mm.
0: that's such a good point
2: because you can't raise a worry again if you've been told not to worry because you're disobedient, and patients, particularly on the conveyor belt in large units, and that's pretty well all we've got now, have to be compliant mm. absolutely mm. and
0: were you seeing this much more occurring in the hospital
2: setting than at home? yes. Yeah, and more in the hospital setting than the um, th- than the GP units. GP units is a silly title because the GPs only came if they're invited and rarely came – well, sometimes they came to advise on a transfer, sometimes they came to do suturing after the birth. But um, the only place I've ever seen anybody decide on a transfer with his back to the woman, because he was looking at the sky to see whether it would snow or not and whether the unit would be cut off. It was a very good way to make the decision, but it was the only time I've ever seen it. (laughs) Wow! Wow, Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) But he was looking for kind of altruistic reasons, not to see what the weather was like for golf or something.
2: He wouldn't. No, not at all. No, no, no. That it was. He certainly wasn't golfing weather. No, he was definitely seeing. Can I give her more time, or Mm. will the road be blocked by the time I've done that?
1: Yeah. and isn't it interesting that uh, how i mean I, I remember this from from practicing in in rural and remote settings not not necessarily in the uk or not in the uk how the context of care um and decision making has makes a massive difference to the decisions It doesn't matter who's making the decision but it, the context makes a massive difference to the decisions yeah and so but you but i think i mean you saw that as well and I mean, I I remember that in your PhD and in the research, in the chapters that came from it, you also wrote about how the presence of a senior staff member influenced what hmm. was happening and what the midwives were doing.
2: Yes, it effectively quietened them. People always, always spoke more in the absence of someone senior to them because a lot of women got most of their information was student midwives, but student midwives wouldn't give information in the presence of a qualified midwife in case they said the wrong thing or appeared mm. to be undermining her.
0: Yeah. And I can imagine that continues. That seems yeah. to be Oh, absolutely.
2: Function. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some of it is watch out for sister, you know, because she's very busy or, you know. We've got, you know, or there's some reason why you should behave in this particular way, but it's probably not something she feels she should be saying. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. absolutely. And mm-hmm. do you feel that how we, how can I put this, how we as midwives go into that birthing environment, and I'm probably asking a question that we, we know the answer to, but in terms of the outcome of good birth, of a, of a mother being able to transition into the phase of motherhood having had a good experience a good birth something that she's able to have enjoyed or to have appreciated and not have been traumatized mm. that this this use of language this use of kind of how we speak how we withhold ourselves mm. within the system is impactful
2: I think you used to really important word there katie withhold i think it's really important to be honest with women you're caring for because they know i remember going to do an antenatal class on the evening of the day my mother died and i knew there wasn't any cover Mm. and it would be more work to go in and contact all those women and tell them not to come than to go and do it so i went and did it and you know we were sort of halfway through a course. I mean, I was sort of, everybody was getting to know each other. And I remember saying, you know, thinking, do I sort of plod on with the script? Because I it was the last thing I wanted to do. Mm. And in the end, I took a deep breath and said, you know, I'm doing my best here. There's no cover. Nobody else can do it. Motherhood is very different for me today because my mother died this morning. And they were lovely with me. Yeah. You know, some of them even actually inquired about my welfare on the anniversary of that death.
0: Oh.
2: I mean, people yeah. rallied around me, and it was a really good class. But I mean, it was a really good class because they supported each other. Yeah. You know, but I nearly didn't say because it didn't. You know, it was hardly appropriate to whatever the topic of the um, of the class was, which I've long since forgotten. It's yeah.
1: interesting, isn't it? Because it's. It's it's also considered not appropriate in a context where midwifery is has kind of become this professionalized thing where we're separate and, you know, supposed not to have feelings. And yet in a context and, you know, both I'm not sure about you, Katie, but both Mavis and I have practiced in this kind of community independent Mm. outside the system context. It's absolutely about a relationship where It's okay for the for the midwife or, you know, the the person who has the the skill or the knowledge that's needed to also have needs and feelings and a personal life. And it's much more about relationship, isn't it?
2: Mm. And also, I mean, the the system as it now runs completely ignores the fact that emotions are contagious Mm -hmm. and the most contagious one is fear. So if you've got a fearful midwife. You know, you'll have a fearful mother. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, the more rules we have, and the more midwife is scared of doing the wrong thing, the more the whole, you know, you you blow it for everybody concerned.
1: We'll be right back.
0: I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mum, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the Global Lactation Clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together.
1: Let's talk about that, because one of the things that you've researched and written about a lot, and I know this, Mavis, because a lot of your work has underpinned my work. For any, I, I don't know if, if people are familiar with my work, but Mavis supervised my PhD, and, and my work's built on a lot of the work that Mavis has done over the years on <coughs> standardisation and 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 both Mavis and I began to practice midwifery before guidelines were even a thing which might be hard for people to believe now um and so we've watched a lot of change happen so Mavis can you talk about about standardization and about you know how things have evolved in in that area
2: yeah I mean I don't mean there weren't ways of doing things before guidelines because they were but they were there were routines, and there were thing knowledge held in common, and also there were relationship things. Often relationships with senior obstetricians. You know, Mister X likes his ladies to have Y. You know, whatever that may be. Um, but now we've got the industrial model, and you know, every bit of research I think that's ever been done on women's perceptions of childbirth in hospital, they, they spontaneously use the phrase being on a conveyor belt that yep. so we are using an industrial model. An industrial model assumes that the product in each instance is the same and that the what goes into the product is the same and people are different. And so the rules we make, and it doesn't matter whether they're policies, procedures, standards, guidelines, they very rapidly fossilise into rules. Because if you don't obey them, you've got to write an essay why you didn't, and you haven't got time to write an essay. So you're beset by rules which aim at standardisation, but people are not standardised. And so you end up with a lot of, you know, imposing on people. I mean, research never said everybody should have anything. There's a bit of research which guides us as to what we should not do but even that is not utterly absolute there's no research which said this woman i am looking after today should have this that and the other mm-hmm. because we're all different yep and so standardization is really destructive and it's destructive for the midwife because it takes away all her flexibility and midwife and mother are robbed of any autonomy they can't they can't help each other to be autonomous
0: i think there's also a confusion between even now between the fr- the words guidelines and protocols within mm. the system as well and treating guidelines as a protocol or like you say that it's a one size fits all approach mm. when actually it's a guideline to guide us to think yeah. to to work with collaboratively within the greater team yeah. and and I think what I see from the system is we have these kind of um vertical relationships of these hierarchy all the way down to the the woman being at the bottom basically oh. and actually we need to be working more horizontally mm. um, so that we all have our points where we can come in with information receiving it thinking about it, making choices and and working in that way. But it, it definitely doesn't work like that. And for me, your article about midwifery as a business model helps explain some of the problems that we're facing today. Can you talk a bit more why working as a business model comes with these challenges and what it's really doing in terms of how it's framing us
2: one of the principles underlining the business model is efficiency. And efficiency means getting the most for the least in, output, for the least input. Um, But birth is about relationships. So that if you impose getting the most, the least on birth, what you have is meanness. And meanness in relationships is very destructive.
0: Mm,
2: yeah. And so... The midwife can't go the extra mile because she's so pressured because all her tasks are laid down and measured and actually care and being with are not counted at all. There's no box for, you know, did I make this woman feel safe? Yes. Mm. There's no box for being there or not being not there if she didn't want you there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can remember spending time as a student midwife. It still sits with me. And I'd finished my tasks, so to speak, of the ticked boxes. And Mm. I was in a four bedded bay and I went and one, I sat on the woman's bed next to her. Um, So that was a big no, no. And I got reprimanded. But also I got reprimanded because I wasn't technically doing anything because Mm. she had started a conversation, invited me into her space was talking about how she didn't feel well, was quite happy to have this conversation openly. Mm. And this became a group conversation with the other women, as so yeah. many of us will have experienced. Mm. And I was reprimanded. And I still remember that feeling as a student midwife yeah. 25 years ago. Sure. Thinking, How am I doing something wrong? This is what I'm like. This is my job. This is part right. of my job. But I can't fill in a tick box to say that 20 minutes was just as valuable as taking yeah. someone else's blood pressure or helping Probably with the birth so. of that baby. Yes, indeed, yeah. I would agree. And
2: surely, around birth, the doer should be the woman, and we should be the responder. Yes. Yeah. And it struck me so much with the free births that, you know, that in their doing, midwives were intervening in a way that was often perceived as destructive. Well, let's let's
1: let's move to free birthing because I I know that you've moved now to free birthing and you've you've actually this is your current passion and you are um your your co you've just co-edited a book on this but can you tell us a bit about how you moved from because you you did a lot of research looking at um, midwives and why midwives were leaving midwifery and why some weren't and and all of the the difficulties because. What you just said, Katie, illustrates really well why it is that midwives do the things that Mavis found, or some midwives, um, Mm -hmm. that Mavis found in her original research. Because when midwives are treated, are punished for sitting with women, then you can understand to some extent why it might happen Mm -hmm. that midwives shut women down because they don't have time. And there's loads to unpack in there. But can you tell us about the the journey towards researching free birth Mavis which is what what you've been looking at recently
2: yes I mean I've been aware sort of in the background that there are more and more free births for a very long time and as you say Sarah we did why midwives leave why midwives stay why midwives return all these and the theme again was being able to practice or in terms of leaving not being able to practice as you would wish to practice for the reasons that Katie's just outlined um And then I became aware that free birth was rising. And one of the reasons women was free birthing was that they wanted a similar autonomy to what the midwives were wanting. Um, And I tried for quite a long time to get research funding on this, and it proved impossible. I mean, I got as far as an interview with the Department of Health, and the first question was how many free births per year in the UK. Well, you cannot count an absence from statistics. <laughs> so I knew, you know, I knew from two minutes in that I'd yeah. wasted a uh-uh. you You know. Um, And also, the more I looked at it, the more I realised that this didn't fit in, the whole bureaucracy of research. I had a colleague who tried to do research on free birth in Ireland, taken it to the Research Ethics Committee who granted their consent on the grounds that the name and address of every free birthing woman should be passed on to the local maternity hospital. I'm just looking at Katie's face. Katie didn't know this and is I mean, if, yeah. if, if this is if this is ethics, you know, I well, it was ethics with the perceptions of the people on the ethics committee. So anyway, we decided we weren't doing research, we were collecting stories. And so Nadine and I set out to collect stories, and over quite a while, we collected fifty-two women's stories and the stories of five doulas who attended freebirths. And that some has- were written stories that they'd written themselves, and some were interviews. And then, of course, during COVID, they were mainly um, done via Zoom. And you've made them into a book, and we made it into a book, and the book is just published. Freebirth <laughs> stories edited by Mavis Kirkham and Nadine Edwards.
0: So you can go and get your copy and the links will be in the show notes, folks. So um, I've had privilege to read a little snippet of the book Mavis and two of the stories, and I must say they have not only made me have tears, which is quite often when I read stories about birth, but also made me laugh out loud, one of them. I had to read that out to um, a friend who was in the kitchen with me and just say, listen to this birth. And they also had tears in their eyes from joy and from just the emotion of that. So listen out, folks. We might have a special for you where you get to hear one of those stories um, recorded. So I will keep you posted.
1: It is an amazing
0: book. So maybe what I would really like to know, because obviously this isn't... A, not new, but it's a new area that you've been able to research and to be asking these women's stories and really getting good, deep information throughout this book. Mm. Was there anything that really surprised you?
2: Um, One of the things that surprised me was the extent of preparation that these women were very responsibly preparing for their births. They were very knowledgeable. And they were also well supported and they varied vastly in what they wanted. I mean, some people wanted privacy above all else and um you know some had you know their partner, a doula, a couple of woman friends, a photographer, I think one had a homeopath um you know they but they had what they wanted yeah and that was really important um because this is not systematically analysed data, this is a collection of stories, but we didn't just put them as whole stories because that would have been, I think, quite hard work to read. Hmm. But just going along with what the woman said, it breaks down into why free birth. And we've got three chapters, one on journeying away from trauma and institutionalisation, one on the journey towards free birth, and one on building safety um, and trust. We've got section on preparation, we've section on relationships around free birth, which are really important, and then the labours and the births, and then after birth and the wider issues. And there are all sorts of problems people encountered. It wasn't a bowl of cherries. But the last chapter, the impact, was so positive, even on women where the outcomes were not what you call clinically good, but they felt they'd done their best. And they'd given the baby the best start in life. Mm. And mm. nobody regretted free birthing. Wow. Whatever mm. the outcome. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying if we'd gone and got another 100 women, somebody may not have, but none of these did. And bear in mind, although this is not research, I don't know of a research study that interviewed more than 10 women, and we've got 52. It's mm. incredible. Um, another thing I do want to say, because it's really important, this is a UK study. And these women had the safety net of the NHS. Mm. These women who choose to free birth, who could have had free NHS care, who didn't want it, but could opt into it. And this added to their feeling of security. And we had a few emergencies. There was a cord prolapse where the woman did all the right things and went to hospital and had a crash section Mm -hmm. and was very satisfied with it. And her description of the experience was incredible. I'd never heard anybody talk about her body trying to suck the baby back in.
0: Well, wow. Wow! Yeah, it was. Can I slip in another question here that's just come to mind? Yeah, go on. Oh, I'm cheeky. But I'm just in terms of the breadth of your experience and having worked in home birth settings as well as a midwife, mm. did you notice a difference between what you were seeing from women's experiences from home birth? and maybe home birth and transferring in, compared with free birthing?
2: Um, The women spoke, some of the women wanted to free birth as a result of a previous home birth, which they felt had been very heavy-handedly managed, and they used the word managed, very Mm -hmm. deliberately. And there were a number of women who were very sad about a previous home birth where the midwives had been noisy and interfering. And this really made me aware of how the midwife's presence is an intervention in birth. And they were free birthing partly because they did not want the intrusion of the midwife's presence. They didn't want the intrusion of monitoring of the fetal heart. They didn't want the intrusion of all the things the midwife had to do for the midwife to feel secure like V's and monitoring of the fetal heart, and making a lot of noise and spreading out a lot of equipment and clashing stainless steel and generally frightening the woman. So, yeah, it's not what's not just a difference between hospital and home. <laughs> On the other hand, I do think, I hope for my own practice, but you can't observe your own practice, but I think the best home birth midwives who it has been my privilege to observe were very similar to some of the doulas and some of the friends who supported the free birth women. Mm. They were very quiet and they were very supportive and they just, they were not intrusive.
1: I think that's critical and I wonder if that in part comes back to the question of, I'm going back to, not just standardisation but guidelines, guidelines and the professional frameworks that that registered midwives have to work in, in, you know, in in countries, in high income countries where we have registered midwives and we have these guidelines. I mean, I didn't say this earlier, but one of the things I wanted to say with guidelines is a reminder that guidelines are for professionals. They're not for women, you know, and all, all patients in a wider healthcare context. They guidelines tell the professional what they have to offer so women don't ever have to do anything that the guidelines say um but but the but the midwives do and so we have these professional frameworks that that oblige midwives particularly those working in the system but even nowadays i mean it is no longer possible to be an independent midwife in the uk in the way that i was an independent midwife say 15 years ago mm. because the the increasing regulations rules expectations have just made that not possible and i mean i i suppose it's it's inevitable that i was going to ask do you do you see that relationship mavis do you i mean it, it seems clear to me that there's a relationship between the reduced ability of midwives to offer the kind of care they want to offer and the increase in the numbers of women who are saying well i'm going to i'm going to free birth
2: yes um and Yes, I mean, I mean, this this is it links with women free birthing. It also links with midwives leaving midwifery. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm taking a moment to pause because I'm just absorbing it and and having yeah. I've left the UK 17 years ago. I was privileged to have a a training that was very much sort of what you both were talking about, and then also working in that. Conveyor belt method. And then with my other ways of going, I've kind of been out of the birth scene, so to speak, and the home birth scene, which deeply saddened me and stayed in the postpartum and the the breastfeeding scene. But it's just, I feel deeply sad. I hear it so often from midwives who are leaving from the profession. And and it is just, it feels like the box is getting smaller and smaller and smaller in in where we're able to practice autonomously. And that was always the thing that was sort of thrown at us as student midwives 20 odd years ago was a midwife is an autonomous practitioner mm. and it feels like that is being lost. Mm. And we are kept in these boxes, not only from ticking the boxes, but we are in those boxes ourselves. And, mm. and women are being impacted and births being impacted and breastfeeding and bonding and everything that comes with that relationship is. So that's mm. just
2: me going. Hmm. I think there's two things. I mean, you're absolutely right about the autonomy and the, everybody's autonomy is being, well, I mean, you know, if you're if you're doing a standardized model, you're standardizing the people as well. You know whether they are carers or cared for. Um, uh, but then there's also the the issue of continuity. And um, we've lost that. And okay. I mean, the great thing is that where there is continuity, they're develop Pat Brody researched this ages ago. She only she used it in a paper to the ICM, she never wrote it up properly. Um, but Where there is continuity, loyalty to the woman, loyalty between the woman and the midwife develops. And this is seen by management as a threat to loyalty to the employer. And I think this is one reason, I mean, I think it's probably deeply subconscious in management. This is one reason why we haven't got continuity. And because, although we've got you know, masses of research that shows it transforms outcomes. We don't do it or we do it in such a half-hearted way that it's not real continuity. Mm. And this is a big effect of the industrial model because it's not just midwifery. We were talking about this the other day that, I mean, general practice and psychiatry can say exactly the same things, that continuity of care is known to improve clinical outcomes, but it's gone. You know, and yet we claim to be evidence based, and we aren't. No, we're system based Mm. and highly inappropriate systems and business model based. Yeah, sure. Mm.
1: Coming, coming back to the book. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of, to some extent, been with you on the journey. You know, with the book, talked to you, talked to you throughout, and and I know that you and Nadine were really keen to make the book about the women's voices and not yours and that comes that really comes through in the book and and one way in which it comes through is something like 90 percent of the words in the book are the women's words and when you and Nadine have written a tiny bit to just explain things or you know illustrate you've put your own words in italics um and I and I love that about the book that that yes. you and Nadine are just there kind of just yeah guiding people a little bit but you you have written a chapter towards the end on your own reflections um, yeah and I mean I, I know I know you've been because because I know you I know you've been looking at free birth for more than 10 years I mean we were talking about yeah. this so tell us about your own reflections and you know and and you tell us tell us what you've learned and where you're at with this
2: yes well in terms of just a couple of words on the structure of book. We were utterly inspired by the work of Svetlana um, who doesn't look at birth, but she's looked at um, women in the, in the Soviet Union in the Second World War, and she's looked at um, Russian soldiers in Afghanistan and their return. And she does this beautiful layout with her words in italics, and it's also a discipline because if you're making your words look different, you 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 ration them. Mm. Um so you know that we didn't think of this. We were inspired by mm. somebody who had a much more difficult has a much more difficult life than we did. Um, in terms of our reflections, I mean we I learnt a lot. I think Nadine would say exactly the same, but she's not here. I learnt a lot from doing this book. Um and one I mean, we've already talked about preparation and satisfaction that women were so so healed and empowered by their births, whatever the outcome and they were all positive about having free birth and would do it well except for I think there was one whose husband um didn't couldn't cope with doing a free birth again, but that was his choice, not hers. But even one woman who didn't plan a free birth, planned a home birth, and was kept, her husband was kept on the phone for 45 minutes trying to get a midwife during which time she had the baby. But if they had another one, they would free birth Mm. because then they could just have the joy of the birth without the hassle of the phone call. Mm. Um, But what we reflected on in a lot of ways goes back to what we're just talking about with midwifery, because what the women wanted was very much what midwifery used to want. Um, the stuff that Trisha Anderson wrote on feeling safe enough to let go and helping, you know, providing that safe situation. And yet midwives have moved from, years ago I, I wrote this, from being the safety net to being the ringmaster. And it's a bizarre analogy, but it, it is what's happened with the development of professionalisation. Um, so there were lots of sort of sad things to reflect on as a midwife. Um, there were lots of positive things about how the women were preparing, moving away from fear. And then there was the the doulas. Um, and... Not just doula's. Doula's are not a unified group, but um, the what the doula's working with free birth were trying to do. And one in one of the stories, and it was a twin birth. The both the mother and the midwife were qualified, experienced midwives. Sorry, the mother and the doula were qualified and experienced midwives. The mother is still practicing. The doula gave up midwifery in order to be a doula, but she gave up midwifery for the exact reasons that took me and originally her into midwifery Mm. so that, you know, she could practice in the way we've been talking about. Yeah. And some of the doula's reflections are really, you know, just bring tears to the eyes. I don't know if it's worth...
1: Yes, do, I know exactly yes, the
2: paragraphs you're thinking of. Please read can I Can I read all three paragraphs? Yes, please do. Yes, the confidence in the women who birthed without the medical support or the medical interventions or disturbances was incredible. These women are. They're walking so tall and really feel like they trusted themselves. They birthed on their own terms. Nobody messed with them. Nobody weighed the baby. Nobody did anything. Nobody talked, really. That's phenomenal. I wish I could get midwifery in line with that. I know you've been looking at this for years, but it's really just becoming clear to me now, after what, 12, 13 years have been with women, that what they're needing is people who can sit and be with birth, people who know, people who they can can trust, people who can look forward to it with them and reflect back on it with them because they see them in the community in the future. When I started this, I saw myself as a doula that could fill a gap. The doulas were a stopgap until they got maternity services sorted out. And now in some ways, I feel like doulas are the last threads of midwifery, kind of holding on to some of the knowledge, some of the wisdom, some of the tools that midwives are no longer allowed to use or they don't have time to use. Like sitting patiently, like knitting, like not asking questions and just being there. Uh, you want to cry, don't you? I mean, I've got tears It's
0: yeah, exactly. because I felt it. Yeah, I felt that as a midwife.
2: Yeah,
0: I moved yeah. out of birth for several reasons. And I would often say, even as a new midwife, gosh, I think
2: mm-hmm.
0: I want to be a doula or people would say to me, what's the difference between a midwife and a doula? And I'd, I'd feel so confused because I'd feel that that was my role to be that presence, to be there, to be a trusted source. But I was so lucky to to have great mentors and watch Can these types too. of home births with mm. community midwives, with continuity of carer, not mm. just continuity of a team. Mm. And, it, yeah, it brings me to tears because I think it's deeply sad that we can't easily work as midwives like this anymore and yeah. that has and that's a magic we've talked about this on this podcast before and it is a real magic to and a privilege to be able to work in that space mm. like that.
1: Mm. Mm. Avis what do you see as the future of midwifery?
2: Um, I'm not sure I think there will always be women who want to birth under their own powers. And I think there'll always be women, and there may well be women who've had that experience themselves, who will be with them. And I think, you know, when you look back, the powers that be, and they've changed over centuries, the powers that be have always tried to stop this. But in the end, they couldn't quite stop it. They tried to license it, which paralyzed it, and then it moved on. But I think there will always be women who want to be with women. And there will always be women who want to be with themselves and the babies. One of the phrases women use quite often, and it's something that really interests me, is using the word attend. And one woman, I don't think I can turn it up immediately, but one woman said very eloquently, I wanted to attend to my body and the baby and not have to attend to the midwife. Mm. And we should be attending to the woman, not her feeling she should attend to us and fit in with our routines. So Mm. I think it will go on. I think it won't be called midwifery because that's a licensed term now. But there will always be women with women, I think. Mm.
0: May I ask you if there is a moment within your career that, or within your world of, of working with women and families and birth, a moment that's inspired you?
2: Quite a number, but um, one, I was trying to say, this is not a, in a sense a midwifery moment. This is a good nursing moment, but it's the same. It's about care. When my mother had my elder sister, which must have been 1941 or 42, in, in the Second World War in London, which has been heavily bombed, she was in labour in a, ho- a hospital where all the windows were long since boarded up and bombed out, and a lot of the midwives had been transferred to be nursing the wounded. And uh, my father worked on the railway, so he wasn't with her. He was working working in a very visible situation because steam trains are very visible from the air. So she had lots of reasons to be frightened apart from the fact she was in labour. And she laboured through the night and saw very little of anybody. And in the morning, a very smart woman in a splendid uniform came round and um, stood by her bed. And just at that moment, um, she was hit by a contraction. So she reached out her hand and held the hand of the woman who just put her hand on the bed. And the woman said, she slapped her on the back of the hand and said, I am the matron, you do not hold my hand. And she went on her way, and the story became even more tragic because the baby, she had the baby, and the baby subsequently died. But anyway, she always told that story, a story of humiliation and defeat. Turn it on 40 odd years, she was dying in a hospice in Sheffield. And I went in to visit, and I stood in the doorway of the room, and she was in her bed. And there was a lady in a very smart uniform sitting on her bed, and they were quietly laughing, both of them. And she had told this story of being humiliated by this wartime matron, and this very skillful nurse had managed to turn it so that they both felt sorry for this poor, pathetic, wartime matron and were both quietly laughing at her. And I thought, that's good care. The whole humiliating story was dissolved into two women having a quiet giggle.
0: Something that is so important, and that's about taking
2: time. Yeah, exactly, and sitting on the bed. Mm. Exactly. I, I I, I think they actually were holding hands.
0: That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That is just a lovely picture of, yeah, something that could have continued to have gone throughout an entire lifetime of being yeah. a distressful it. story mm-hmm. and the importance of someone being able to take time to sit, to reframe, and to mm-hmm. be with.
2: Yeah. But in a sense, it took a matron to reframe it. Nobody <laughs> else acknowledged it in the meantime. Yeah.
1: Same level. <laughs> Yeah. Good use of authority then. Good use
2: Absolutely. of authority. Oh, yeah, me, yeah.
0: <laughs> Lovely. Mavis, it's been a pleasure having you, but I think there's the last question I should ask you because you have been prolific in your work, but you are technically retired now. But can yeah. I dare ask the question, what are you going
2: to do next? Well, I may do another book. I don't think I'm going to publicly commit myself, but I think I'd like to do this. Um, Sarah has been advising me, um, I'm not allowed to say nagging me, she's been advising no, me and not, several other that... people have for a while, that I should pull together a sort of collection of essays, mainly articles like, you know, the one about the business model and mm. one about standardisation and a, a whole series of articles that have been in Midwifery Matters, but which I want to update a bit. And do this collection of essays. And I couldn't be bothered because most of them were already published. And then I read a brilliant book called Friendship in an Age of Economics. And I thought, I want to do birth in an age of economics. Ooh. And so, yeah, that I th- if I'm going to do another book, that's the book I will do.
0: All right. I will quietly look forward to that because that sounds... Uh, it will very... be a little while. That's all right. I'm waiting. I can yeah. be on tenterhooks. Yeah. You
1: can rest assured that I, I mean, I, Mavis and I speak on the phone regularly, but I will be regularly, um, what was the phrase you used? Not encouraging. That in, like, encouraging. I will be, I will be <laughs> continuing to encourage a mid-star. Sarah um, will I, not be sitting in the background quietly knitting. She no. will be
0: very noisy in the foreground. Holding
1: you your hand on the bed. Saying, <laughs> I, can I can Get out of bed and get on your typewriter. <laughs> yeah, I can go. <laughs> Fantastic something that we've we've talked about a lot, mavis and and I and I I know is a crucial part of your work is the impact that a good birth can have on women and families, and much more widely as well. Could you speak to that for a moment?
2: yes, I think I think this is really important. Nobody's ever researched it, but there's lots of research on the terrible impact on. Individuals and families of postnatal depression, you could do an opposite piece of research on the experience of a good birth. These women repeatedly said, I felt really healed by the, by the process. I felt strengthened. I felt supported. um And this makes, I think, a lot of difference. And I've been aware, I mean, long before I started in the free birth book, of women who said, who'd had a good birth, who said, you know, I think back when they're. Toddlers having tantrums or teenagers being teenagers. And I think I gave birth to you. And if I can do that, I can cope with this one. And I think that makes a lot of difference. There's a a lovely one here from the book. It feels like an amazing start for my three children. I don't get a lot of things right, parenting, but I think, well, I got your birth right. Yes, I did everything I could make to make sure that your very start in life was as kind of peaceful and as positive as it could be. And it was. So I comfort myself with that. And a glass of wine on an evening when I've had a bad parenting day. (laughs) We can all relate to that in some way or other. Indeed. Yeah. So I think it does. A good birth equips women to be good mothers i'm not saying they're not people who've had terrible births who are brilliant mothers but it's harder work and also good midwifery care brings together the support and Nikki leap's been so eloquent on this that good antenatal care makes sure women have got a good support network for postnatally so it's it's your own healing and it's making sure that, you know, you've got the support in place to go on when you've got the baby. Mm. And there's a whole art to that and getting, you know, it's half the point of antenatal groups. It's not the birth, it's the postnatal, that yeah. you know people who from your locality, of people like you, who've got babies of the age of your baby. Mm. Couldn't
0: agree more. Absolutely. Mavis, it has been an utter delight. We have covered many topics and beautiful stories and moments. So I would like to say a big thank you for joining us in the Cauldron today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today. Please don't press pause, but instead scroll on down on your podcast app. Yep, that's it down there and pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee. For more on breastfeeding and lactation content, head on over to my website and for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So here's the bloopers.
1: Would you like to hear my best Mavis story anyway, which put me in my place when I was writing my PhD? Oh yes. Oh dear, go on. Can you, do you know which one I'm gonna tell Tell me? No, I don't, go on embarrass me. So I I was writing, I was in New Zealand when I was writing my PhD thesis. And so Mavis and I would have chats at the, it would be the end of my day in New Zealand and Mavis would have just woken up and fed her hens and we'd have a chat and and on one occasion, (laughs) Um, Mavis said, "So how was your day? i was I was sl- I was really, really struggling with this particular chapter. Um, and I said, Well, Mavis, I haven't had a very good day. Um all I've done is copy and paste things from one of my chapters into another chapter. I haven't increased my words. I've just copied and pasted. And there was this pause on the end of the phone and often with Mavis often a pause precedes one of Mavis's fabulous one-liners so I knew it was coming I just didn't know the form it was going to take and Mavis just said in my day I wrote my thesis on a typewriter we didn't have copy and paste and if I made a mistake I had to type the whole page again (laughs) so yes okay that was that was fabulous that was fabulous you were always brilliant at providing perspective Mavis thank you for that
0: (laughs) That put you in your place.
2: (laughs) I thought you were going to say the thing about you know, a haiku would be acceptable as long as you said all you want to say. (laughs) No, I wasn't. Talk about that. No, but you know, it's used (laughs) in my answer. If people say how many words, a haiku would be acceptable so long as you said all you want to say. I've never seen a PhD in the form of a haiku, but it could be acceptable. That would have made my life so much easier. I know someone who tried to knit one, but the university couldn't store it. They couldn't find somebody to put it in the library. No, it didn't fit the library template. Didn't fit in. The, didn't fit in the standardized guidelines, did it? No, it
1: yeah. didn't. This is the thing about guidelines, isn't it? Yes. What's yeah. the What's the getting a PhD equivalent of a free birth?
2: Writing a book, a good book.
0: Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and Lactation, The Fundamentals, has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some, pretty tough at times, quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80-96% to of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just 8 weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term i believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long knowledge is power That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.